In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 through 11. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, uh, at this point in the letter, Paul's finished dealing with all the different problems that he had heard about um, from Chloe and Chloe's family, and he's addressed all these different things, which we'll touch on next week, as just as kind of a recap of what we learned through the letter to the Corinthians. But now he's moving on to uh, the practical, or the the, which is the collection for the saints, and so. That's a good order, isn't it? Spiritual first, then the practical, because the practical should flow out of the spiritual. If you've got the spiritual right, then the practical will fall in place. Verse one again, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Now, Paul is obeying James, uh, the brother of Jesus, who's the, the head of the church in Jerusalem, he's obeying his recommendation that he encouraged the churches to remember the poor. There was a famine in Jerusalem, and uh, the church there needed help. In addition, um, it, it was um, just to kind of understand what was happening at the time. In Jerusalem, uh, uh, there was a ministry from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers, that took care of widows. And the reason they did that is because, you know, out in the uh, Israelite world and the different places the Jews uh, had migrated, if the husband died, a lot of times the widow would come back because she wanted to die in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem had an unusual number of widows. And so the Sanhedrin had to figure out a way they collected funds and help distribute food to the Jewish widows. So when the church started, the church also needed recognized, well, uh-oh, uh, we're having the same problem. Christian, there are Christian widows and they're not being taken care of by the Sanhedrin, so we need to create a fund to care for these widows in their old age. And so the church had that fund. Now, now not only did they have this ongoing need, but there was a famine and the price of food was very high. 
And so Paul saw the need. He talked to the different churches about collecting these funds and taking care of those widows. And his guidelines that he gives for this, um, for collecting and helping widows, is in 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. It's a really helpful for churches that have a benevolent fund. It gives some guidelines. We don't, some of them aren't as applicable today, but um, some of them, for example, include if the widow has family members, she should go to the family members first for support. The widows that received support were to be those who had set their hope in God, widows who prayed continually. In other words, they had a good testimony. They had to be over the age of 60, have had only one husband, and have a good uh, reputation for good works. But the younger widows, Paul says, are to remarry and to raise a family. So this fact that the churches help those outside of their own community, these are uh, parts of the Roman Empire that were way far away from Jerusalem, but the fact that they recognized the need there and wanted to help them reminds us that we are part of a worldwide church. From the beginning, the church saw themselves as one. Yes, little outposts all over the Roman Empire, but they were all one. And therefore, if one had a need and others had uh, resources, they would give to those in need. You know, we tend, churches tend to focus mostly on their local outreach. What are we doing in the community? And nearby. But about 25% of our income goes to help uh, churches in other places, in, in foreign countries that have need, in places where they're working for the kingdom of God, they're like-minded, and yet they don't have the resources that we have. And so to advance, our whole goal is advancing the kingdom of God, not just here, but around the world. And so that's why we give because we have the ability, thank God, and his blessing to the church, we have the ability to give, and so we want to partake in what they're doing. We choose those particular missions because they're like-minded and because of their love for Christ and the gospel, and because they reach people, really, that we can't reach. We try to have funds go where the need is the greatest or where faithful people are giving themselves in a difficult field. Um, just a few examples. Uh, we have a brother in Mumbai. He has started 12 churches in the slums. P.T. Babu, he's a, just an amazing little guy. He's only about this tall, and he's out there every day with uh, the gospel in Marathi, the local language. And he has, he has led swamis to Christ. He does Bible studies with uh, uh, religious, Hindu religious leaders and have seen them converted. He has a gift of healing. He, he has seen people that were diagnosed with AIDS come to a complete and full recovery and not have any sign of AIDS. Uh, he introduced me to some of them. Um, so he has just this amazing ministry. So we support this little guy there, and it doesn't take much to take care of him and his family's needs. Then we have somebody up in Canada, and I use these two extremes because they're so different. He's laboring in a hard field where the community at large is kind of anti-Christian. And yet there are people, Canada is very open to uh, immigration, and so they have people from all, all over the world and are 
missionary up in Canada, labors hard in this field. He only has about 20 people in his church and some come and some go, but he's just faithful to meet the need there under those tough conditions. His wife has had to support them by teaching in Canada because they don't have a lot of support from the states. And she recently had to retire because of, of health problems and they're getting up there in years. They're trying to find somebody to replace them because of the need in that community. They're really the only, uh, I would say, like-minded. Our, our understanding of the gospel and how we teach the scriptures, they're in that entire city. So, so we have these extremes. Some have huge results. Some have uh, just a tough feel, but they're faithful to feed the, the people in those. So th those are the kind of people we want to help. Verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Sunday, the first day of the week, that was when they met. It's this is the earliest mention in that the church met, met on Sundays. Paul met with the elders of Ephesus on Sunday in Ephesians 20. The church met on Sunday and it called it the Lord's Day because it was the day that he rose from the dead and it was the day of Pentecost when the spirit was poured out and the church began. Sunday worship represented a new beginning under a new covenant sealed with the blood of Jesus. There are arguments now, with, even within uh, uh, Bible-believing uh, churches that recognize Jesus as Lord about what day do you worship? Why don't we follow the Sabbath regulation in the Ten Commandments? I have dear Jewish friends, Jewish Christian friends, who argue with me back and forth about why don't you meet on Saturday? Um, because it's in the Ten Commandments, why do you ignore that one commandment? And uh, in Romans 14, Paul makes it very clear. He says some people esteem one day above another. For example, Muslims on Friday, Jews on Saturday, most Christians on Sunday. Others esteem every day alike. In other words, every day should be a holy day to the Lord. And then he gives this conclusion. Let everyone be persuaded in their own mind. So I, uh, we discuss why we meet on different days and we never come to a conclusion because we're both convinced we're persuaded in our own minds. And I think that was um, very practical of the Apostle Paul, that we don't have to all agree on these peripheral issues, but we have to know why we've chosen to do what we do. Uh, though Christians still obey the moral laws based on the nature of God, we're not bound by worship or societal laws that God gave through Moses. We don't, uh, we don't slay the, the goat. We don't uh, practice those all those worship traditions. We don't even have Jews. Don't even have the temple to meet in. It wasn't. Um, it was forbidden to sacrifice any place other than the temple. So once the temple was destroyed, they could no longer keep the laws. And so, why do we keep some of the laws? Why are the rest of the Ten Commandments something that we observe? Because they're based on the nature of God. 
They're based on the unchanging nature of who God is. We call those the moral laws because they correspond with God's good and holy nature. Worshiping on the Sabbath is the one law that was a law of religious tradition. It was based on the fact that God rested on the seventh day. But we are under the new covenant, the new covenant in which Jesus rose from the dead and sealed what we just celebrated, sealed it with his blood, and it was affirmed, confirmed on the day of resurrection when he rose from the dead. And so we meet on Sunday. Now, these churches were to take a collection each Sunday so that it was ready to go when Paul arrived. And unlike some TV evangelists, Paul apparently didn't like taking offerings. He wanted them to take care of it all before he came. He accepted gifts from churches to support him and his team in some cases, but when he thought it might get in the way of the gospel, he supported himself by leatherworking. It was the custom of the churches to support the apostles who traveled from church to church to, to share with them the apostles' teaching that they'd learned from Jesus. It appears that the funds were collected and set aside before he arrived. Each person was to decide what they should give. It should be in accordance with the, or proportional to how God had blessed them financially. And that's indicated by the, expression, as he may prosper. In his next letter to the Corinthians, he's going to mention giving again, and he says that everyone should give according to what they have determined in their hearts. They would, that would mean that all could participate to the degree that they were capable, regardless of their income level. Now, this was totally a break from the Jewish uh, tradition of the way of doing things that had set percentages, uh, the, the first fruits of the crop, the poll tax, every, every person had to get, every male above the age of 20 had to give a set amount of tax each year for the maintenance of the temple. But it, under the new covenant, we give as the Holy Spirit leads us to give. We're not under the law. All believers should have the Holy Spirit to guide them as to how much they should give. Now, the Old Testament command of giving 10%, that's a good guideline um, because it was actually in place before the law. Abraham gave Melchizedek 10% of, of the spoils of the war. So it was something that was recognized even before the law was put in place. But more than likely, it'll be in proportion to how God has blessed us. However, sometimes, We'll, the Holy Spirit will prompt us to give sacrificially to a special need. How unlike the collections of some churches in our day, where emotional pleas are used to coerce the people to give. Instead, it was the individual's decision based on his or her prosperity at the leading of the Holy Spirit and done on a weekly basis. Part of every offering went to the poor. And part of every offering here actually goes to the poor. 25% goes to missions, which includes um, uh, local missions like Old Town Mission, uh, Sunshine Rescue Mission, and Hope Cottage in Flagstaff that ministers to the homeless. And we have our own ministry to the homeless here with our, our pantry. 
The purpose of the gift was to help those in need in Jerusalem that I mentioned earlier. The church had this sense that we're all part of one body. That's why we give to missions, and not only to spread the gospel, but to, to help with the needs of the most impoverished. And that's why we help in Africa and India. Most of our missions fund is focused on evangelism, but as I said, a lot of it is even here locally with the homeless. Some of you have given above and beyond your regular giving with a special gift when the Holy Spirit prompts you. And it always ends up helping someone in need. You'll notice I never, I never do my an, an annual tithing sermon. I trust that this is true, that if there's a need, the Holy Spirit will prompt you. We can share the need, but we're not going to twist your arm to give or tell you how much we're trying to, to raise or that kind of thing. We trust the Holy Spirit can work in you, and he has never failed us. In 20 years here, God has met our budget every year. Now, some years we've been behind a little. The next year we are up a little, and it all balances out every year. And um, our, my uh, good friend, um, G.V. Matai, who's the head of the India Evangelical Mission, another one of our missions, uh, said, he always tells me when he comes, are you still giving 25%? And I said, yeah, sometimes 30. And he said, I, every church I go to that gives like that, God keeps blessing. And it's been true here. Amen. Verse three, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So the church was going to choose men to deliver this gift, the, the, the collection that was taken up to Jerusalem, and it was done by them, so it didn't touch Paul's hands. That's wisdom, because we are not unfamiliar with the enemy's schemes. By having them handle the money, no one could accuse Paul of misappropriating the funds. The letter he was going to write would be an introduction of those particular men and what the gift was for, how the gift was to help. Paul didn't want credit for the gifts. He wasn't even sure if he'd be going and accompanying them. Paul's term for the gift in Greek is interesting. It means, in Greek, an expression of grace. I like that. In other words, the gift expresses the grace they have received and are passing on to the church in Jerusalem. When we give an offering, that should be what's on our heart. God has blessed me with so much. He's been so gracious to me. I want to give back to the work of God, to advance the kingdom around the world. And it should be our relationship with one another, too. God's been so gracious to me. I need to extend grace to this person who's offended me or is being rude or whatever because of God's grace given to me. We give back to God to bless others in gratitude for all the grace that we have received. Verses 5 and 6, I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you and even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Now, Macedonia included some of the churches you read about in Scripture, Thessalonica and Philippi. We see that at times Paul was uncertain of God's leading. He isn't real sure exactly 
what's going to happen here. The ocean's rough in the winter, and few ships, ships would attempt to cross at that time. So by telling them that he planned to go through Macedonia, it would mean he, he planned short visits at those different churches, and then to arrive by winter so he can spend the winter with the church in Corinth. There, as you see through these letters, there's a lot of correction and instruction to be given. He's, while he's waiting for the seas to calm down so he can travel on wherever he's going. He's not sure quite yet, wherever the Lord leads him. We can see Paul's attempt to make the best use of his time. He's planning out how much and where, and because of travel conditions, he can spend it here, spend it there, spend the whole winter where the need is in Corinth. Um, and he tells us in another letter that we should make best use of our time because the days are evil. He writes that there were times when he was perplexed in, second, in the next letter, 2 Corinthians 4.8, which means he was uncertain, but he goes on to say that that uncertainty never drove him to despair. So if you, if, I think sometimes we think of a, of apostles as these superhuman beings, you know, that never have a problem and they have such a clear link with God that he tells them, move here, now move there, now take three steps, you know, that kind of thing. But we see from several, from the book of Acts and different things Paul wrote in his letters that sometimes they just don't know. They're waiting on God's direction. They're very much like you and me in that they had to wait and hear from God, and sometimes they didn't know and were just waiting until God spoke. They guessed what God might be doing, but they were always open to the clear direction of the Holy Spirit to speak to their hearts. Now, was Paul asking for financial help for the journey, or was it spiritual encouragement and fellowship that he was asking for the help? Probably both, I would say. And again, we think of the Bible characters as supermen, but when we look close... They need help just like we need help. They need encouragement. Paul asked for prayers to be given for him, just like we do. Verse 7 and 8, For I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. So Paul had his desires about what he wanted to do, but always yielded to the will of the Lord. He wanted to spend time in Corinth if, notice that word, if the Lord permitted him to do so. He was writing from Ephesus and believed that he should stay there until Pentecost, which is in the spring, before he started that, that journey through Macedonia and then to Corinth. The opportunity, he says there, was so great in, in Ephesus, so the adversaries were many. That is often the case. When the enemy sees souls are leaving his domain and entering the kingdom of God, he's going to stir up his most easily influenced people to resist God's work. Verse 9, For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Great opportunities for effective work had opened up, and there were many adversaries. The Greek analogy is an open door, and some translations will say, a door has been opened to me, and is in the perfect tense, meaning this opportunity, this open door, this uh, effective uh, 
possibility for effective work is an ongoing thing. It's not just a temporary thing, but an ongoing thing. But that doesn't mean there's no resistance. Is he implying here that resistance is proof that God is in it? If Satan resists, does it mean that great things can be done for the kingdom of God? Well, I think it makes sense. For if Satan's job is to keep people from being liberated from his control, he's going to fight the hardest where souls are coming to know the freedom of belonging to Christ. Sometimes we guess that, that God's not leading in a certain direction because we face resistance, because it gets difficult. I don't think Paul ever thought that was the case. He saw his imprisonment as a way of advancing the gospel in the letter to the Philippians. His suffering in Philippi resu resulted in a church being formed. Jesus told us that if they persecuted him, they will persecute us, his followers. But there are times when we must retreat to return at a better time, such as when Paul had to leave certain cities on his missionary journeys only to return again later. Verse 10 and 11, For when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So Paul was caring for his protege, Timothy, his disciple, and preparing the way for the ministry for him there. Paul was... Uh, uh, telling that church that you better take good care of my, my son, Timothy. Sometimes he refers to him as his son. And earlier in the letter, he said he was going to send him to him. Paul had men like Timothy and Titus and others whom he was discipling and was when they got to a certain point of maturity, he could send them to straighten out churches when they went sideways. And that way, he could multiply his ministry while training them at the same time. Paul took seriously the charge to make disciples. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is to make disciples. And that means to teach what Jesus taught to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's an investment of time and energy, knowing that you're being obedient to Christ and multiplying your effectiveness for the kingdom of God. And you know you've been successful when the person you disciple begins to disciple others. In a communication with Mikael in Israel, he told me that for the last three months, he'd been teaching someone what I had taught him. And I rejoiced because I realized he's a disciple. And by the way, he sends his greeting and his love to the whole congregation. Pray for that man. Um, God's using him in a special way. Let no one despise him, referring to Timothy, because Timothy was young. What he shares with the Corinthians has Paul's blessing. Paul gives him equal status with himself when he wrote, he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Help him probably means financial support, arranging food and transportation for him and those traveling with him when he, when he goes on. In peace is added, causing us to ask if 
there was such a contentious spirit there that they had to be told to send him off in peace. It was the typical departure greeting at that time, go in peace. But uh, certainly if they gave the Apostle Paul a hard time, they might give young Timothy a hard time as well. He told them to put him at ease, which in Greek is literally to not give him cause to fear. Paul was encouraging to them to have better behavior. The gift to Jerusalem was from a church uh, consisting most churches consisting mostly of Gentile believers who culturally were looked down on by Jews. And yet in making this gift, these Gentiles were acting like the body of Christ and not like the culture around them. Paul wanted them to do the same thing with young Timothy. They were not to despise his lack of credentials or his age, but to respect his calling in the Lord. You can imagine how Paul would be concerned regarding the Corinthians' attitudes towards him. They would much prefer the eloquent Apollos. Perhaps Paul was sending Timothy to further break down those elitist attitudes that were there in Corinth. Paul was expecting Timothy to come with other men to help him in what God was doing in Ephesus. These brothers were probably Timothy's traveling companions because it, you ne rarely would you travel alone. It was dangerous to travel alone in those times. The opportunities were so great that Paul needed their assistance. Paul knows he can't always do it all on his own. That he, and he knows when he needs to re call in reinforcements to increase the harvest of souls. This generosity towards those whom they had never met, this gift that they're collecting, reminds us again, we're part of a worldwide church. I've always enjoyed meeting Christians in other cultures. You know, we may not speak the same language, but we share the same heart. I'll never forget one of those times when we visited Capernaum. Ray, this was about a decade ago. Ray Crow was leading the music. We were singing songs of praise, some that a lot of people are familiar with. And a large group of Ethiopians came in. They all wear the same clothing. And so they all kind of, you could tell who they were because they all dressed exactly the same, same print. And they recognized the song, so they surrounded our little group, and they're all singing the song with us in their language. And then a group of people from India came and they got around the Ethiopians and they're singing in their language. And it was just one great big praise and worship fest. And it ended up being over closing time for Capernaum. And so I was one of the last people leaving the site. And the, Fran the Franciscan friar at the time, you know, brown robe, rope around the waist, he's jumping up and down. He's saying, I wish this would happen all the time. I wish this would happen all the time. It was just one of those special times, but it was a little foretaste of heaven where every tribe, language, and tongue are gonna gather together around the throne and worship our savior. And you know, every time, every year I go to Israel, the crowds get bigger and bigger because the words of Jesus are being fulfilled. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the nations and then the end will come. I love the fact that we are in a place where visitors from around the world stop to worship. Because of it, we have Wayside Family in Germany, 
Israel, Switzerland, Kenya, Uganda, India, and elsewhere. The website connects us with the entire world. And we're reminded in Revelation that there will be all those, everyone from around the world together. For God so loved the world. And Lord willing, we'll be launching the daily devotionals in six languages in the coming years. The chapter began by telling the Corinthian church to save up this offering for the poor in Jerusalem. Now, when you read through the prophets, you'll find one of the most common condemnations of Israel is that they did not, did not take care of the poor. The early church community saw this as one of their main expressions of their faith. Previn Vang writes, since God provides for his people, Christian giving is the participation in God's redemptive purpose. In Christ's community, there's no distinction between the givers and the receivers. All members of Christ's body are receivers of God's redemptive grace and all are therefore bound to make sure no one goes without the experience of God's provisions. Paul's address to the Corinthians on this issue follows this very line of thinking. The poor in Jerusalem are members of the same community as the Corinthians, and the provisions Christ has given his community must benefit everyone in it. The issue, therefore, is not merely for even, or even primarily, one of monetary aid. It's a matter of worship. Generosity is repugnant to our old nature. The old nature wants to receive but never relinquish anything it values. But the new nature that is ours in Christ has freely received grace and mercy from God. So it desires to extend that grace and mercies to others. And one of those expressions is in the form of financial assistance. Paul tells us that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Once we yield to that new nature and give from a cheerful heart, we find that it's a blessing to give. The Women's Bible Study has been studying the Sermon on the Mount. This week, they, they came to that verse that says, but if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If the, then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? They learned that the Jews referred to a stingy person as someone having a bad eye. In other words, they couldn't look upon the need and be motivated with compassion to the point of helping to meet that need. The verse before it, though, says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. A healthy eye is one that sees the need and gives to meet it. If we want to be full of light, we need to be generous people, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, pointing us to the needs all around us. So let us not be of the multitude who travel that road of least resistance, the broad road of selfishness with the wide gates that lead to destruction, but rather join the saints who have gone before us, those who chose that small gate, that narrow road, the road of love and grace that gives of our resources that Christ has blessed us with, the road that leads to life. Amen? Amen. I'm going to have Jill 
lead us in a closing song and then I'll give the benediction.